Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernie B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 110th episode of the Nauticast titled The Webs We Weave, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 8 in which the Lannister Small Council absorbs the news of Renly's death and starts finding ways they can benefit. God damn it, they're traitors, all of them, just like Renly. There's such a ghoulish tone to this chapter that I love where it's like they're like peering at Renly's corpse and seeing what they can grab away from him and steal from his body before <laughs> rigor mortis sets in. It's just, uh, it's awful, and I love it. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Worm of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Beard Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorsadelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex Raybill, Commander of the Ladies, and Jellothems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Black Fire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Hodover, the waiter for T.W.O.W., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgari, and the First for Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser of the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Sean Will the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress Horse, and our two newest members of the Small Council, you heard that right, two newest members of the Small Council, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, and Marshall Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, and the Jade Sea. He is going to determine a title later on, but I love that one as a good start. Well, thank you to all of our counselors, and welcome to our two new ones. Thank you, as always, to all our counselors, and welcome to our two new ones. The names just get more and more metal and badass as we go. Can't wait to hear more. Mm-hmm. And our spoiler warning, as we say on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duck Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, our not brand new but recently uh, declared High Lord. <laughs> and this, is, this question is a really great one. We're going to split into two parts, one for this week and one for next week. I came to Jeff's writing more from the meta perspective. The simple idea that you can't hold George to a publishing deadline because his payments from HBO greatly see what his payout from books would be was fascinating <laughs> and honestly refreshing. Just not something I had thought of before. 
I'm somewhat fascinated by the division of Feast and Dance, and its ability to follow the normal story arc, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and finally resolution. I understand in the multi-book series you won't have an overall climax, falling action, and resolution, but in each previous book, you have had those elements. But getting back to the multi-part question, here we go. I now regard Feast and Dance as my favorite books, but only after I read the combined reading list. So what are both of your opinions on the reading list? I believe that the dislike of Feast and Dance basically comes from the inability to reach the peak or climax of the narrative arc of the book, and had the Battle of Fire and the Battle of Ice been included, it would have changed the fan perspective on the two books. And what do you think? Could this have changed the perspective on the books? That's a great, again, just the beginning to the question there, so thank you so much. And what do you make of that, Jeff, in terms of the overall uh, structure of Feast and Dance? What do you think of the, you know, reading them in a combined order so that, you know, all characters are sharing the chronology? <laughs> and what do you think about, you know, if, if the Battle of Fire and Battle of Ice had been in there? So I'm that asshole who did not <laughs> you like... You stop it right there. Hell. <laughs> yeah, just end again. There's my answer right there. No, I, I'm that asshole who, when I first read Feast and Dance, I read in the, in the published order, and I came away feeling unsatisfied with the Feast for Crows, specifically because... It didn't have Tyrion, Danny, or John, the three major characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. And it had all these other characters. You know, it had, you know, fucking Greyjoys and Dornishmen and Arya. Yeah, I guess she was in there. She's fine. But she's in Bravo, so Bravo sucks. So what so where, where am I gonna get back to Danny, Tyrion, and John, the three main characters in A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, as it turns out, uh when my second read through, I read through with the with the combined reading order, and I enjoyed it a lot more to actually get John's perspective and Danny's perspective and Tyrion's perspective intermixed with those uh, chapters from A Feast for Crows, which I did enjoy a lot more the second time through. However, now that we're, what is that, like seven years after I did my actual read through, second read of the of the books, I do think that there is something special about the published order of these books. And I think that you were the one who actually convinced me the most about why the published order as it stands is the better way to actually read these stories. I mean, I think it's important to read them both. Not important. None of this is important. I think it's useful to read them both ways. I think you can see a lot of parallels by reading them together and you can, you know, not miss your favorite characters. On the other hand, that, you know, that really lengthens the gap between certain Characters like you know, yeah. Bran and Sansa only have three chapters to begin with, and now there's just like oceans of time in between. <laughs> now, having said that, like Sansa's chapters in Feast are really long, especially the last one I think mm-hmm. is maybe the longest chapter in the series. So, it you is. could, you know, it's enough material for a few chapters, but you know, so th- that feels to me like less like a singular reading experience, more like you know, a giant, like you know. Moby Dick times two kind of project. <laughs> um, I think Feast works really well on its own, actually, in retrospect. I understand, of course, it's missing a lot of the main characters, but I think it's really focused on certain themes and certain outcomes from A Storm of Swords and, and, and the ripple effects. And I really like the stuff with, like, Euron. You know, not, not everybody does, but I really gravitate to it. Dance is my favorite book in the series, just sheerly for the quality of the content, chapter by chapter, mm-hmm. scene by scene. I think it's the best. Structurally speaking, it is a mess. So I think it definitely benefits from actually having the, the, the two put together. Again, I think that you can read them wonderfully both ways, but you know, I think the, the combined reading order is really good for getting people on board if they just look at Feast or Dance and go, what, what is this? Right. So I, I think that helps. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think like reading it through, like the first time you should read through, I've always told people that you should read it in the published order. And then your second time through, sure, use a combined order. Used, uh you know, Shanti Collins's boiled other reading order, which he recently just, uh, he didn't revise it, but he, I think he rehosted it someplace new so people can find it more easily. I just saw him, but he actually posted on Reddit for all, for all places. Um, or one of the other, the, the feast dance, the, uh, the one I did with, uh, Game of Owns, which I'm blanking out on right now, which is terrible, right? 
my, my friends. Uh, the one episode you did with them? Yeah, that was a week. Was that, we, I helped uh, do the the Brienne the, and Jamie one? No, no, no. So I actually helped with their their reading order when they actually created one back. Oh, in Oh, the reading one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I a feast about with dragons, too. I think, or something like that. A feast with dragons, or something. Whatever the reading order is, it's it's really really good. And uh, I had a very small part to play with that. That was all mostly uh, Zach and and Hannah and a few other folks that were doing that. But that takes us to our second part of the question, which is about the dislike for the climaxes for feast and dance. I. So the, the question is, if we had included one or both of the battles, Battles of Ice and Battle of Fire, would it have actually have made the book feel, you know, would people have enjoyed it more? And I think we've talked about this a, a bit in the past, but just to re- refresh people on, like, our opinion, I think, is that of the two battles, the Battle of Fire is probably the one that might have done the narrative just a little bit more oomph in it. It may have made people appreciate Marine a little bit more because he actually had a climax as opposed to a cliffhanger, which of course the buys are flying into Marine and Barrison's final chapter. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen? And you're like, oh, I'm actually on Danny 10 and then I'm on the epilogue and A Dance of Dragons is over. Um, we talked about this about, and you talked about this specifically, but the Battle of Ice is just like one battle that's of a multi-part battle which is going to take place. So if we got the Battle of Ice, it wouldn't necessarily be fulfilling because we wouldn't actually know what happens at Winterfell, right? Yeah, I think sometimes we talk about the Battle of Ice as just, we use that phrase as just a stand-in for the overall Northern campaign, but as that term has evolved from Georgia-specific usage, it means Stannis versus, you know, Hostine Frey, or whoever else at the, at that, you know, that iced over like at the Crofters Village. It's a shaping operation for Winterfell itself. Who knows what's going to happen there? Maybe it won't be a complete battle. That's why Georgia's staging a Battle of Ice, because maybe it'll just be a coup of some kind or an ambush at Winterfell. But yeah, I don't think that that necessarily would have, you know, made dance feel more complete in, in, in the reader's eye. I think the Battle of Fighter might have helped a lot. For me personally in Marine, I really liked Quentin's arc and I really loved Danny's last chapter on the Dothraki Sea. So that made it feel kind of whole in character terms, even if not in, in direct, you know, big picture armies plot terms. Uh, for the North, I think, you know, I really love the pink letter twist there in terms of yes. wrapping things up. I think that connects the wall and the Winterfell stuff nicely and makes John kind of reckon with his decisions and, uh, you know, leads to some wonderfully fascinating speculation. I think there's definitely a case to be made that even if you can justify each of these cliffhanger endings, though, it's too many on the whole. I think that's a totally fair yeah. critique. And I think, too, like, too, with the North, you also have, I think, Theon and Asha's storyline ending in A Dance of Dragons is just pitch perfect where Theon shows up in Stannis' camp and you know oh, yeah. remembers his name and Asha's like Theon is like see sister this time you knew me which is a callback to see sister see sister this time I knew you which is a callback to a chapter we did a few months ago Theon 2 from A Clash of Kings which is a beautiful brilliant a- ending and just conclusion of that arc that goes back you know almost 20 years and it's just ah oh, it's just so emotional and I love that so so much but I do agree I think the northern endings are pretty pretty good I, I don't actually find John stabbing to be a, much of a cliffhanger at all really I, I find the actual cliffhangers actually be in Marine and other places like that as opposed to to the North. I think George really wrapped the Northern Story Alliance up really, really well. So thank you, Kabath, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions here, we'll answer on the Notacast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where we have monthly bonus A Song of Ice and Fire and Fever Dream episodes, show notes, Q&A, and access to the Nata Slack for our two highest tiers. It's been a lot of fun to watch so many of you jumping in since we hit 900 patrons. Thank you so much. We're grateful to each and every one of you. And stay tuned. Next month, we start our multi-part series about my personal favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, if it counts, even though it's not published, (laughs) The Forsaken. 
Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun to get into that. We're actually going to start this multi-part analysis with a bit of background story about the Ironborn from A Feast for Crows, A Dance of Dragons, and maybe we'll sample a little bit of Theon and Victarion's chapters from The Winds of Winter, as well as to kind of get a broad picture of what is feeding into The Forsaken, which is going to be a whole lot of fun to do that full out analysis, man. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion of House Lancer, he had persuaded Lancel to become his spy and crowed about having it all. The girl, the city, the power. Let's find out what happens to Tyrion in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 8. Varys warms his hands over a brazier and reports that, sadly, so sadly, Renly is dead. We are all very sad. Anyways, he was murdered, got his throat slit. Terrible, terrible tragedy for the realm. Anyways, who done it? Have you considered that too many answers are like the same as no answer at all? My informers are not always as highly placed as we might like. When a king dies, fancies sprout like mushrooms in the dark. A groom says that Renly was slain by a knight of his own rainbow guard. A washerwoman claims Stannis stole through the heart of his brother's army with his magic sword. Several men-at-arms believe a woman did the fell deed, but cannot agree on which woman. A maid that Renly had spurned claims one. A camp follower brought in to serve his pleasure on the eve of battle, says the second. The third ventures that it might have been the Lady Catelyn Stark. Thank you, Varys. Extremely helpful as always, Cersei doesn't say. Anyways, you want this small council to grow even smaller, or would you mind sharing some actual insight instead of your opinion about Fleetwood Mac's premiere album? Well, Varys would. He totally would. But there are too many rumors. Too many rumors are worse than not enough rumors at all. Cersei warns Varys that he's paid well for the truth, not for rumors. And by the way, did you hear me before when I was threatening to execute you? I'm making it explicit now. Here's me threatening you. Littlefinger puts in that the small council would be great if it was just a little smaller, but Varys jokes. Yeah, jokes. That Littlefinger would be next on Tyrion's list. Varys then jokes back. Yeah, they're always joking, these guys. That Littlefinger and him might end up on the wall together. You never know. They're joking. They're bros. They're not. Anyways, now that the joking is done, Cersei decides to threaten Varys with being sent to the wall. Wait, so it's not a joke now? Bro, not cool. Littlefinger asks if Renly's death is a ruse, but no, it's not a ruse. Renly is very, very dead. We're all sad. So sad. Joffrey is going to be disappointed, Tyrion finally puts in. He had a spike meant for Renly's head. But whoever did the deed, we must assume Stannis was behind it. The gain is clearly his. Tyrion did not like this news. He had counted on the brothers Baratheon decimating each other in bloody battle. But Tyrion is good, guys. Totally good. Anyways, what's up with Renly's army? Well, bad news, friends. Most of Renly's army bent the knee to Stannis with the noble houses of Florent leading the way. Ah, but wait, Vars. You said most. Not everyone? Nope. Not everyone. Randall Tarley and Mathis Rowan ran away like Robert E. Lee cosplayers that they are, and Sir Courtney Penrose, who by the way is a villain, is still holding Storm's End. Also, Renly's corpse has gone missing. Very unrelated, extremely unrelated, but Loras Tyrell has fled with the fifth of the knights who showed up to Storm's End. And yes, he may have murdered three guys on his way out in the Stormlands, but it's okay. It's only Robert Royce, Eamon Kai, and some rando probable peasant after all. No big deal. Sir Loras is likely making for Bitter Bridge, Varys went on. His sister's there, Renly's queen as well as many great soldiers who suddenly find themselves as kingless. Which side will they take now? A ticklish question. Many serve the lords who remained at Storm's End, and those lords now belong to Stannis. Tyrion leaned forward. There was a chance here, it seems to me. Win Loras Tyrell to our cause, and Lord Mace Tyrell and his bannermen might join us as well. They may have sworn their swords to Stannis for the moment, yet they cannot love the man, or they would have been his from the start. Is their love for us any greater, asked Cersei. 
Scarcely, Tyrion said. They loved Renly clearly, but Renly is slain. Perhaps if we give them good and sufficient reasons to prefer Joffrey to Stannis, if we move quickly. And what would these reasons be? Well, Littlefinger immediately blurts out that they should bribe the Tyrells to join their side, but Vars is like, nobles are so above bribery, my friend. They're not chickens to be bought in the market. No, sir. Littlefinger counters to go look in the market and let the small council know how easy it is to buy a chicken these days. It's all extremely droll, and everyone is starving in King's Landing. Anyways, it's not like Littlefinger would go to Mace Terrell and give him gold. That's fucking peasant behavior, bro. He will offer castles, honors, lands. It's no bribe. How dare you even suggest that, sir? It's a gift. Tyrion puts in that this probably is not going to work out for Mace Terrell, but it might work for the Lesser Lords. Littlefinger suggests that the key to Mace Terrell is Loras, Mace Terrell's favorite son. And how are they going to accomplish that? Easy. They're going to pull up Renly and marry their asses together. Is that the right wording here? I don't know. I've only been married one time. Still I'm married, by the way. And who will be the blushing bride and dashing husband? Why, Marjorie Terrell and Joffrey of House Baratheon. <laughs> Lannister. <laughs> but Cersei objects. Joff is betrothed to Sansa Stark. Big fucking deal, Tyrion says. They'll just break the marriage contract. No deal. No big. Tyrion is good, guys. Anyways, Tyrion points out that Cersei might tell Joffrey that Marjorie is hot and ready to trot. But Cersei's all like, no 13-year-old boy cares about that shit. Exactly right, Cersei? 13-year-old boys are not about that. Oh, except for Tyrion. He got married at 13, as he reminds Cersei. Yeah, but Cersei says that shit was shameful. Joff is a fine-ass boy. Again, only according to Cersei in this narrative. Tyrion does that annoying thing where he starts to pointing out in his head that Joffrey is a monster, reminding the readers that Joff had Boros Blunt tear Sansa's dress off. And while there was a component of anger in the act, sexual sadism was truly behind it, Tyrion thinks. He and Varys had tried to figure out a good time to get Joffrey away from the Hound to go to Shatai's brothel, and I just want to pause here and say, Tyrion, what the fuck, man? Don't inflict Joffrey on sex workers. But Tyrion is good, guys. He's so good. Back in the present, Tyrion tells Cersei that they need to up and get it to bed with the Tyrells or Joff ain't gonna live long enough to make his wedding. The Tyrells bring 50,000 swords to their side. Varys creep creeps on over and puts a powdered hand on Cersei's sleeve, telling her that Joffrey needs to put the needs of the realm before his own desires. Cersei, absolutely correct for once, tells, jo tells Varys to get his fucking hands off of her and stop patronizing her. They don't know the shit women go through when they're told to, quote, put the needs of the realm first. Besides, Joffrey won't settle for Renly's widow. He won't consent. Tyrion shrugged. Oh, when the king comes of age in three years, he may give or withhold his consent as he pleases. Until then, you are his regent, Cersei, and I am his hand, and he will marry whomever we tell him to marry, leavings or no. Cersei's quiver was empty. Make your offer then, but God save you all if Joff does not like this girl. Well, that is now settled. Talk then turns about who should go to Bitterbridge to make the arrangements. They're definitely not going to send Bronn or Shagger to do it, as hilarious as that mental image is. Cersei immediately suggests Sir Jocelyn Bywater, but Tyrion says no. Jocelyn's a good guy, but he won't make a good envoy. Okay, well, how about Tyrion then? Hmm, yeah, about that, no. Cersei should so totally go herself and arrange the marriage for her son. The Lannister siblings bicker for a bit, but then Lord Creepyfinger steps forward. Your grace... My lord Han, said Littlefinger, the king needs both of you here. Let me go in your stead. You? What gain does he see in this, Tyrion wondered. I am the king's counsel, yet not the king's blood, so I would make a poor hostage. I knew Sir Dolores passing well when he was here at court, and gave him no cause to mislike me. Mace Tyrell bears me no enmity that I know of, 
And I flatter myself that I am not unskilled in negotiation. Yeah, it kind of went from Irish to Scottish to like American all the same time. It's fine. I'm an American. I can do what I want. Not unskilled in negotiation is also a very rich way of Littlefinger saying that he, quote, bought off the Gold Coast to betray Ned Stark. I digress but not for long. Tyrion realizes that Littlefinger has them in a bind. He wants to keep this enemy quite close to himself, but he really can't get out of King's Landing and allow Cersei to fuck everything up that he's been working on. Tyrion warns Baelish that there's fighting between King's Landing and Bitterbridge, plus Stannis will have his own men out to try and bring the Tyrells to his side. So Littlefinger wants an escort. Tyrion offers 100 gold cloaks, 500 gold cloaks, Littlefinger counters, 300 Tyrion sallies back. 340. The remaining 40 comprised of 20 knights and 20 squires. Littlefinger needs to look official. Tyrion agrees reluctantly, and Littlefinger asks that the two red wine boys, Horror and Slobber, which is hilarious that these nicknames have now, the small council know these nicknames that Sansa gave these kids, be included with them, as they'll need to return these kids to Pax for Redwine as a gesture of goodwill. <laughs> Goodwill. Yeah, love to see it. Cersei doesn't want to release these kids as Paxter is a, quote, traitor. Again, it's really rich what these Lancers are doing at King's Landing. But Tyrion says they'll send Hopper back with Littlefinger and keep hold of Slobber and hope Paxter can puzzle out the meeting. But then Littlefinger gets back to business. He needs a lot of shit. I'm just going to bullet point his requirements for this mission because there's it's basically a list. He needs swift horses, lots of gold, a commission in writing signed by every small counselor and Joffrey the king himself. Tyrion uncomfortably agrees to everything, and Littlefinger says he'll be gone by the morning. Good. Get the fuck out, Littlefinger. Oh, wait, one more thing. Littlefinger wants a reward for his leal service to the king. When Cersei asks what he wants, Littlefinger smiles slyly at Tyrion. Hmm, interesting. And says he'll think of something. Outside, the sky is foggy, and Tyrion wonders about whether it'll be dangerous. It'll be a dangerous day to travel. But he orders Varys to draw up the papers and orders Joffrey to get woken up. Dude, the king is still sleeping? It's daytime, as my daughters like to say, when they're jumping on me at six in the morning on a Saturday. Not mad. The small council breaks up and Tyrion finds himself somewhat alone with Cersei with Sir Preston Greenfield there. And Bronn is also there too, probably creeping in the shadows. Cersei asks how the chain is going and Tyrion replies that it's going great. Thank the gods for Sir Courtney delaying Stannis. But then Cersei puts on the charm offensive. Weird. Tyrion, I know we have not always agreed upon policy, but it seems to me that I was wrong about you. You were not so great a fool as I imagined. In truth, I realize now that you have been a Great help. For that, I thank you. You must forgive me if I have spoken to you harshly in the past. Must I? Tyrion gave her a shrug, a smile. Sweet sister, you have done nothing that requires forgiveness. Today, you mean? They both laughed, and Cersei leaned over and planted a quick, soft kiss on his brow. Too astonished for words, Tyrion could only watch her stride down the hall, Sir Preston at her side. Now alone with Bronn, Tyrion is at a loss of words, wondering if... That really just happened? Cersei kissed him? Weird. Real weird. Bronn asks if it was sweet, and Tyrion says, Um, no way, dude. I'm totally not into my sister. <laughs> he totally is. The last time she kissed Cersei kissed Tyrion was when Tyrion was maybe six, maybe seven years old, and Cersei did it on a dare from Jamie. The woman's take finally take a note of your charms, Bronn says. No, Tyrion says. No. The woman is hatching something. Best find out, Bronn. You know I hate surprises. And that is a Clash of Kings, Tyrion 8. Now, look, I'm not saying I don't miss our month of Catelyn already, but I am saying that this chapter is a nice grounded palate cleanser from Renly, at least. What did you think of this chapter, man? Yeah, Tyrion 8 can't help but feel like a come down after spending so much time at Storm's End with the Baratheon bros, but it's a very appropriate kind of come down. A focused dialogue scene that filters the earth-shattering revelations of those Catelyn chapters through the wants and needs of the major players in court politics. 
Tyrion, Cersei, Littlefinger, Varys. This means something different to each of them, even as they are on the surface acting as a unit. Renly's death, a spiritual and metaphysical phenomenon in the moment, has now been absorbed back into the political community as a shadow on a wall, like anything else, given meaning by its audience. I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense and that this is this chapter essentially works as an epilogue to those Storm's End chapters. And we do get that in the form of like a rundown of what's actually happened at Storm's End. We get rumors of who did Renly in, and then we get Littlefinger heading for Bitterbridge to bring the Tyrells into alliance. I mean, that's basically our springboard for a lot of the political plot in King's Landing going forward. And I'm not just talking for a Clash of Kings. I'm talking past at least a Dance of Dragons because some of this shit is not resolved yet by the end of by the end of a Dance of Dragons. And this is kind of like the same basic narrative structure that George used when he wrote the epilogue to A Dance of Dragons, which functions similar to this chapter in the narrative with Kevin Lannister taking Tyrion Lannister's role and hearing about events in the Stormlands, absorbing the rumors that are flying around them about what is actually occurring in the South, and then Varys making his move, which will then drive a lot of the political action in King's Landing and the Stormlands come the winds winter, as I was saying before. And I just love it. I love these like small, intimate, small council scenes. I just love the small council as a whole. I love whole chapters dedicated to the small council, to any shitty small council as hell. You could be talking about the tariffs being imposed by Gulltown traders floating their way down the narrow sea. I would read the shit out of that chapter. And I just love the small council specifically because it's the beating heart of Southern political Westeros. Love it. You can see that absolute focus on the core of politics in this chapter. The opening shot, so to speak, of Tyrion 8 is a close-up of Varys's hands as he warms them over the fire while informing the rest of the small council of Renly's death. It makes me think of someone washing their hands. Specifically, in the wake of Renly's death, it makes me think of someone washing their hands of blood. Hmm. Fire consumes, as Danny thinks fire makes her clean. Can Stannis use Relor's fire to wash his hands clean of Renly's blood? And what about Varus? Will Danny's fire wash him, wash him clean of the blood on his hands as it strips the flesh from his bones? There's also kind of like a fun continuity piece as well that George keeps sprinkling into the narrative in A Clash of Kings. The White Raven, as we find out from the prologue to A Clash of Kings, has arrived from the Citadel announcing the end of summer. And now in this chapter, which is a little bit beyond the midpoint of A Clash of Kings, a chill is starting to set in in the South. The literal warm summer of the South that Robert boasted of to Ned, all those plums and all, everyone getting naked in the in the water and shit like that, all the great Robert stuff that he was all about, it's now fading away. But it's also the metaphorical warm sun of peace and plenty that was Robert Baratheon's fat rain, literal, literal metaphorical, is also fading, replaced by the cold winter of war, starvation, and death. What was Renly's last word? Cold. cold. And Varus is feeling that chill as well. For the moment, however, Varus's personal crimes and how he will suffer for them are on the back burner, so to speak, and we'll have a lot more to say about the spider's fears and desires in Tyrion 10 when he gives his big monologue about his backstory. The focus in this scene is on Renly's death and how it carries different implications and ripple effects for everyone in this room. Before we can explore those ripple effects, however, the counselors have to confront the reality of the death itself, surrounded as it is by a fog of confusion. Here we see something I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. Renly's death allows George to comment on modern political assassinations, with which the reader will presumably be more familiar than medieval-era assassinations. As Varus says, when a king dies, fancies sprout like mushrooms in the dark. American readers will be all too familiar with this phenomenon. Just look at the fancies sprouting around the death of JFK, our very own young king with his own Camelot. Renly was killed by one of his guards, or by Catelyn, or by a woman he'd spurned. 
JFK was killed by the mob or Castro or by the CIA. <laughs> we feel the need to understand and thus wield some measure of control over the major political and cultural events of our lives. We feel the need to all be detectives. And this is in part why the noir genre has aged so well. It might not be the Prohibition era anymore. We might not be gumshoes running around interrogating dames. But everyone understands the deep frustration of trying to solve the unsolvable. As readers, as audience members, we are detectives of a sort, trying to piece together the narrative fragments we glimpse into a single coherent whole. And we do that in large part because the sad reality is that in life, unlike art, you are never, ever going to arrive at that coherent whole. Power will always, always stay a shadow on a wall. This tragic sense of entropy, this impotent paranoia that can only observe abuses of power but never change, nor even fully comprehend them, is the core of great modern detective stories from Chinatown through Inherent Vice and beyond. And like the detectives in those stories, Varus is able to gather significant intimate information about Renly's death. He knows that Renly's throat was slit and that his gorget didn't save him. So, someone who was on the scene works for Varus. It's a chilling reminder that in any given scene in A Song of Ice and Fire, you kind of have to assume that someone <laughs> in the room works for Varus because the spider weaves his webs everywhere. Yeah, you're right about that. Those webs are extensive. But, you know, they sometimes get a little bit constrained by geography, right? Varus seemingly had informers in Stannis' camp at one point in time, but they all went silent when Stannis absconded to Dragonstone with the royal fleet and closed the port to anyone coming in and out of Dragonstone. So Varys really had no idea what Stannis was planning or doing until he landed in the Stormlands. And we should never forget that Varys' biggest intelligence failure, Miss, was finding out about Ned Stark's execution, not beforehand, but actually on the steps of Baylor's Sept. Thank you, Littlefinger. Moreover, Varys really, as far as I could tell, this is just a, this is a theory, just a, kind of an idea, Varys doesn't really seem to have any eyes inside the Tyrell camp at Bitterbridge as he's unable to provide any real information on what the Tyrells are doing now. And this is just an extremely, extremely minor theory, but there really didn't seem to be much of a Tyrell reach presence in King's Landing prior to the War of the five kings erupting so my opinion any of the spies that Vars recruited that then turn over information to Vars in this chapter that Vars reports were likely recruited from Renly's faction in King's Landing before Renly actually you know GTFO instead of saving mm. Ned Stark's life because he's a coward and even I'm glad he's gone ever overall what I like about these theories of who killed Renly is how you start to see basically the historical foundations you were referring to with the assassinations of who actually uh, why there's be three explanations for one event when the history book is written about Renly by the next Maester Yando or Maester Gildane, I kind of wonder if he won't, if he won't, they won't include theories about jealous lovers, guardsmen who've been bribed, Catelyn Stark doing the deed, or Stannis being behind everything. Kind of makes sense. But regardless of how the history remembers the deed, there's also something a little bit troubling. There's the distinct possibility that maybe Varys does have all this information in hand. Maybe he does have informers everywhere. And if he does, that's really, really much more insidious. And as you say, it's the idea that he might have spies around every corner that matters most. That's more important than whether he actually does. It's relative power. It's power relative to everyone else in the room. And because no one else, not even Littlefinger, can match that spy network, they are all reliant on the information he chooses to give them, whether it's real or not, whether he knows if it's true or not. Meaning that Varus can not only control his own conspiracy, but influence everyone else's. All Cersei can do is complain that he doesn't know more. All Littlefinger can do is wonder if it's a ruse and take Varus's word that it isn't. Even Tyrion knows that he only knows what Varus wants him to know. 
Knowledge is power, it's Varus's armor. But Varus is also like those detectives in modern cynical noir stories in that all the information he gathers doesn't actually illuminate what happened <laughs> or help decide what to do now. Evidence is supposed to be the lifeblood of both detective work and careful reading, but in this scene, George is showing us the limits of evidence. What happened to Renly is beyond the tools Varus is bringing to bear, not only because the Shadow Baby is a thing of occult irrational magic, but also because it vanished, and the only witnesses to it had to immediately run for their lives. Now Varus insists that he is limited by the social status of his spies. As we see in his report, Varus's spies tend to be grooms, washerwomen, men-at-arms. If he has lords and knights in his pocket, at least in this part of Westeros, he's not telling anybody about it. Yet it really doesn't make sense that this should limit Varus's ability to gather information. Flunkies and peons make better spies, as Dantos tells Sansa. <laughs> I hear all sorts of things as a fool I never heard when I was a knight. They talk as though I am not there, and the spider pays in gold for any little trifle. I think Moonboy has been his for years. Varus recruits among these folks for a reason. <laughs> After all, how did Varus find out about Renly's slit throat and broken gorget? Because when Loras made off with the body, he presumably ordered some squires or grooms or men-at-arms to help him, and one of them worked for Varus. Varus's limitation is not the status of his spies. It is the nature, in this case, of the murder act itself, which was designed to throw off detection by leaving no evidence behind. And that is something Varus really doesn't want to admit, because that calls into question the very nature of his profession, <laughs> not just his specific spy network. Renly's death makes all the schemers suddenly look powerless, and so Varus basically has to come up with a reason everyone should still be listening to him. Varus is right that too many answers are the same as none. But as Cersei points out, if that's the case, why trust Varus at all? Mm -hmm. What is he bringing to the table? Pycelle and Jano Slint, after all, didn't bring enough to the table to justify their presence in this room any longer. And Varus and Littlefinger are joking with each other about, you know, they have to do better. And it's interesting to question, okay, but so why are they just joking about it? <laughs> why are they not taking this seriously? Why are they not worried? Because both Varus and Littlefinger have come to the conclusion so far in the Clash of Kings that neither Cersei nor Tyrion really has the capacity to replace them. They're secure in their jobs. They have their larger plans cooking in the background. They're confident in the moment that the Lannisters can't or won't stop them. That's not really their concern. And they haven't yet. And they, as Tyrion has that mandate when he comes down from the Riverlands from Tywin to execute any member of the small council that Tywin thought were acting against Lancer's interests in King's Landing. Varys has been able to play Tyrion off. He's become Tyrion's best friend in King's Landing. He's helped him in many, many ways. So obviously he's pro Lannister, right? No, as Tyrion notes in, in Tyrion 6, he's much more subtle than than a toady like like Bicel is, and the same for Littlefinger too. Littlefinger is the one that potentially had the most to lose from Tyrion coming to King's Landing since he framed Little... Again, I keep... I don't want to yell this, but he framed Tyrion with the dagger for Bran's life back in A Game of Thrones, and he knows it. They both know each other. But there's also the strongest possibility, which I think leads to their job security, is that Vars and Littlefinger know there's a greater danger to all of their conspiracies, and the Lancers know this too, that there's a greater danger than Littlefinger and Vars at the moment, just over the horizon. Status! Status! Okay, I'm done. 
Exactly. Renly's death is a source of concern for Varys and Littlefinger, not because it will lead to an immediate loss of power, but because it might produce a loss of power down the line if Stannis becomes king, which is now much more likely. And the reason they don't want that to happen is that he despises both Varys and Littlefinger, and will probably get rid of them happily, even if it makes his job harder, which is the thing the Lannisters are not willing to do. Tyrion does not like or really trust Varys and Littlefinger, but he thinks, I can't get rid of them right now without making my job harder, and I'm up against Stannis, and I need them, and Varys and Littlefinger know exactly that's what's happening. Varys and Littlefinger need the Lannisters right now. The Lannisters need Varys and Littlefinger right now. <laughs> Stannis is the boogeyman coming for all of them, and it kind of unites them all together. That's the ultimate takeaway from the news of Renly's death. Cersei is a very reactive politician, and she often allows her pride and anger to blind her to the true import of a given piece of information. As such, she is focusing here on who slit Renly's throat, and how useless Varys is if he can't tell her that specifically. But while Tyrion certainly has his own humongous blind spots, he is somewhat better at seeing the big picture and looking beyond his pride. He silently absorbs Varys' news, Littlefinger's jests, and Cersei's blind rage, before cutting through it all to deliver the message that matters. Whoever did the deed, we must assume Stannis was behind it. The gain is clearly his. Hmm. And this is the question you must always ask in politics. Key bono. Who is benefiting? Who struck the blow as a distraction to keep everyone from asking the important question? Why? Why was Renly killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? And the answer, as Tyrion recognizes, is Stannis. The gain is his. And as we see when we return to Storm's End in Davos 2, he has the power to cover it up. By the same token, the answer in the real world, the question we should ask about the assassination of JFK or any other political figure is not who fired the bullet, but why? Key bono. Tyrion understands that the important takeaway here is that Stannis and Renly never had the battle he was hoping for. As the Lannisters have slid toward what seems like certain defeat throughout a clash of kings, the one bright spot for them has been the Baratheon bros turning on each other instead of the Lannisters. And now that's over. There's only one Baratheon left, and he's the one the Lannisters have all been afraid of the most this whole time. Tyrion feels his battle wound from the Green Fork flare up, because he knows he's going to have to fight again very soon. Mm -hmm. We are building towards the inevitable climax that is the Battle of Blackwater and the Clash of Kings. And just a, a minor nit, but I, I love this idea of Tyrion having his very own John flexed his sword, burnt sword hand as a form of uh, his throbbing elbow. Sadly, this is only going to come up one other time in the narrative. Again, it's just a nit on my part, but something I just want to point out. But I think I, I, I love the, the, uh, this idea that you're bringing up about Tyrion zeroing in on the key bono question in this chapter. I mean, consider that through all the confusion and conflicting stories, Tyrion can cut right through the heart of the matter and see that it was Stannis who was behind Renly's assassination, no matter the means of how it was actually done. Interestingly, and kind of sadly, for Tyrion, he's going to forget the key bono when another king dies, and all evidence then points to him. You're at fault, Tyrion, for Joffrey's death. In Storm, he's going to be unable to realize that the Tyrells had the most to benefit with a dead Joffrey and a living Tommen. This is a really fascinating wrinkle, I think, on George's part in characterizing Tyrion, in that he's so spot on with his observations of events that are external to himself. He can really plot out the trajectory of Westerosi politics really well, so long as this doesn't apply personally to himself. And when it applies personally to himself, he has a seeming blindness and inability to see the plots and who is actually benefiting from his downfall. The assassination of Joffrey and Tyrion's role in it is not the last time we're going to see that either. But I will save all of my thoughts about Maid of Boar come a Clash of Kings Tyrion 14. The flashlight can't shine on itself. And as good a political mind as Tyrion is, you know, he's his own blind spot a lot, a lot of the time, especially because of how his backstory within his family has played out. 
but Tyrion is demonstrating his keen political mind relative to Cersei and Pycelle and Janoslint, etc., by zeroing in on the one piece of Varys' information that is useful, something they can act upon to save themselves from Stannis. What of Renly's host? Absent a legal claim, a political program, or an heir, Renly's source of power was his army, and now it's up for grabs. As Catelyn predicted right after Renly's death, most of Renly's cavalry, including many of the lords, has gone over banner and blade to Stannis, the last Baratheon standing. This makes political sense, not only because these lords are now lacking a king, but also because they can now climb a new ladder, advancing their positions, shuffling the musical chairs around a bit. By crossing the line first, Alistair Florent guarantees that his family will be the most prominent in the new coalition. Being Stannis' in-law doesn't hurt, of course. These lords weren't motivated by love of Renly nor hatred of Stannis so much as a desire for power to be gained through Renly's rise. Now Renly's dead, and Stannis is still alive, his star is rising, offering them a chance to gain power through him instead. But not all of Renly's followers followed this logic. Tyrion immediately zeroes in on this opportunity. Most, but not all. As it turns out, Loras Tyrell did not bend the knee to Stannis. Now, unlike in the show, this is not because he blames Stannis for Renly's death. Book Loras blames Brienne. The show also had Littlefinger on hand at Storm's End to immediately propose that the Tyrells join the Lannister camp. This is not the case in the books. So it's not spelled out exactly in the books why Loras was unwilling to bend the knee to Stannis. Without the Lannister deal on the table yet, what was Loras's plan? In part, of course, Loras wasn't thinking rationally at all here. His lover, his other half, had just been murdered, and Loras himself had killed his comrades in his rage. So he fled the scene, riding back to the Reach, riding for home and family, a source of comfort, while he and they figured out what to do next. But those uh, emotional considerations don't apply, or at least not to the same extent, for Mathis Rowan and Randall Tarley, who follow Loras back to the Reach rather than bending the knee to Stannis. And I think what motivates these guys is a recognition that they will not politically benefit under Stannis. If anything, they will suffer with him as king. Stannis has not forgotten which lords besieged him at Storm's End. At best, they'll be confirmed in their position and gain nothing more. At worst, they'll lose it all. And we might salute Stannis for his refusal to reduce politics to bribery and horse trading, but the flip side of that is how difficult it becomes to grow his coalition. The Tyrells and their closest allies slipping through Stannis' fingers at Storm's End winds up guaranteeing his defeat at the Battle of Blackwater. Now why is that? Loras leaves Storm's End with only like 5,000 men, ironically the same size of Stannis' initial army. <laughs> That's not enough to stop Stannis at King's Landing. The variable here, as Varus notes, is the gigantic infantry force Renly left behind at Bitterbridge. Catelyn thought that decision, leaving the infantry behind, might be Renly's doom, but it turns out to be Stannis' doom <laughs> instead, because if Renly had brought them, they would now follow Stannis. There's also like another interesting wrinkle in that the large force of infantry that's left behind is comprised interestingly, and that Varys notes that many served the lords who remained at Storm's End, and those lords now belong to Stannis. And of course, Varys says, that's a ticklish question. Oh, that's what, what's going to happen there? So among the 50,000 or so soldiers left behind, there's a large contingent of soldiers whose loyalty is to lords who have now sworn to Stannis. What becomes of those who are, and I'm use a military term here, OPCON, which is Operational Command, to the Tyrells, but are ADCON, under Administrative Command or Control, by Stannis' lords? Well, Lord Randall Tarly, Lord Fuckface, provides the answer in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 10. Lord Tarly has seized Renly's stores and put a great many to the sword. Florence, chiefly. 
Now, it's likely that these men were all executed by Lord Fuckface after the Tyrells took the marriage deal with the Lancers as proffered by Littlefingers, we'll discuss later in this episode. Again, the chivalrous image of the Tyrells put forward is belied by their actual conduct out in the field. But consider that these soldiers have done nothing during their fate. They hadn't marched with Stannis. They hadn't turned cloak for Stannis at Storm's End. Their only fault was bearing the wrong sigil, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'll admit this is kind of a weird comparison, but I think of these murdered men in the same and similar lens as the Riverlanders that Tywin and his goons terrorize before and during the War of the Five Kings. They never had it really coming. Wrong place. Wrong time. Why is it always the innocents who suffer the most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones? Mm, that's a great point. Usually we think about that line in terms of people who pledge to neither side and are simply, you know, thrown into the, you know, the abyss of the war by both sides. But it also applies to these men who were on one side and just had the unfortunate position of having their lords flip over when they weren't in the same place. And suddenly they're they're trapped by that loyalty, that, that oath they didn't even actually directly swear. Mm-hmm. They're in limbo, pledged to no one. And as Tyrion realizes, this presents the Lannisters with one last chance to stay in power. Win over Loras, and you win over Mace. Win over Mace, and you win his massive army. Hmm. Tyrion is basically following in Renly's political footsteps here. The Lannister-Tyrell alliance completely changes the Game of Thrones. Without this alliance, the Lannisters would have lost everything. And it's Tyrion who makes this possible, for which he gets exactly zero credit from his father (laughs) on a Storm of Swords. Cersei once again takes a reactive stance here. All she can think to say is that the Tyrells and their cronies don't like the Lannisters. How can they become allies? As Tyrion says, the Tyrells don't have to like the Lannisters. They just have to have to. They just have to hate them less than they hate Stannis. <laughs> if the Lannisters can make it so, they win. That's a core concept of politics, right there. You don't have to be someone's first choice to win. You just have to be the best choice available at the crucial moment. Or in a more brutal way, it's like that old joke about how if you and your friend are running away from a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. <laughs> well, I hope I I got to get back into cardio for my own personal life. So in the event that we're actually running from a bear that, you know, I, I I'm, I'm made of balsa wood, sir. Don't worry. You're fine. I'll, oh, I'll, like, I'll try to negotiate with the bear in the form of <laughs> slam poetry. I think you're going to be just fine. <laughs> oh, I would love that. That's great. Um, but I think that also speaks to something that is a core weakness of Lancer ambitions in A Song of Ice and Fire in total. Maybe they can gain short-term advantage and win today's battle while losing tomorrow's war. I mean, part of George's deft handling of the politics of Westeros, it shows us over and over again how the Lancers are maximizing any advantage possible in order to squeak out a victory. But the Lancers are never seemingly able to turn their short-term victories into long-term successes, precisely because they don't have a winning message of why to stick with them or a set of shared principles to coalesce around. I mean, sure, the Tyrells right now might hate Stannis more than the Lancers, but the ideology of Joffrey, such as it is, <laughs> such as it is, means that the Tyrells are always open to a better deal. Tommen in a storm of swords, and who the fuck knows come the winds of winter and beyond. There's an irony in that the Tyrells present a dark mirror to Lancer ambitions in seeing Joffrey as the short-term means to a long-term political goal, putting Tyrell blood into the royal bloodline. Meanwhile, the Starks, who always have that thumb pressed against them in the narrative and lose even when they're winning, as Rob Stark is going to say in A Storm of Swords, they ultimately have the ability to come out on top. Because the Starks have their lone wolf dies, the pack survives ideology, found in harvest feasts and interfamily relations extending thousands and thousands of years in the North. And those boys are never going to stop marching for the Ned's girl. 
Well put. And that's, you know, that's exactly what's lacking in the, these new political alliances. And they're kind of like playing this shell cup game to try to, you know, shift your attention away from the emptiness and keep it going as long as you can. And, you know, the way they do that is with this marriage pact. That's the mortar that will cement the great Western alliance, as Littlefinger calls hmm. it in A Storm of Swords. A marriage pact between King Joffrey and the widowed Queen Marjorie Tyrell. It's so neat that Tyrion can taste it. And you can see why. It's as if Renly never happened. Never lived, never crowned himself. The Tyrells just stuck with the throne all along. Look, here they are. It also negates the betrothal to Sansa, which is politically null at this point, as everyone points out. But it's also worth noting that this is Tyrion's first chapter after Sansa 3, in which Tyrion saw how hideously Joffrey is treating Sansa. This may be an attempt on Tyrion's part to direct Joffrey's wrath away from Sansa, trying to protect an innocent as he did in that earlier chapter. But as we said in our episode on Sansa 3, Tyrion's ability to quote do justice is continually hampered by the king, regime, and family to which he is tethered. Hmm. Tyrion has not solved the problem of his king's sadism. He has simply redirected it towards the Tyrells in an effort to make it their problem instead of his. <laughs> and they, of course, rather permanently solve that problem and frame Tyrion for Joffrey's death in the process, a spectacular rebound of fate that is both unjust and ironically appropriate. Marjorie, unlike Sansa, has protectors around her, and Joffrey, unlike Stannis, has no shadow assassins to outfox those protectors. <laughs> they will come for him and claim his life. Tyrion unknowingly seals his hated nephew's fate and his own, all while doing his level best to save them from the man whose inheritance he knows they stole. This is the essence of not just tragedy in general, but specifically the tragedy of political power. We are being shown how even the Lannisters' best decisions, the decisions that guarantee their short-term survival, still contribute to the long-term destruction promised by the moments and choices that define them deep down. It's all kindling for the fire. But that's still to come. <laughs> for now, this is a genuine political triumph for Tyrion, and like all political triumphs, it is built on marshalling the full extent of one's resources at the precise pressure point with perfect timing. That's all you need. It's that simple. It's that easy to win in politics. <laughs> Tyrion has what the Tyrells need. A living, breathing sperm donor with a crown who is not named Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> in return, all Tyrion asks is survival. Win-win. In practical terms, of course, what this actually amounts to is inviting the Tyrells to take over the royal court. And it's fascinating to remember on reread that Tyrion is not envisioning his father as a leading partner in this alliance. Hmm. Now, that's how it plays out, of course. Littlefinger and the Tyrells link up with Tywin and ride to glory together and Stannis' ruin at the Blackwater. But in these initial planning stages, Tywin has been cut out of the loop entirely. That's kind of exhilarating from Tyrion's perspective. Now, this is in large part because Tywin didn't give Tyrion much directive on diplomacy. He's been kind of left to his own devices to conduct diplomacy on the fly with the royal imprimatur, but... When taken in context with the Martell alliance, which also gives away more than Tywin was willing to do, I wonder whether Tyrion isn't trying to undercut his father on some level, or at least trying to establish his own power base outside his father's control. Yeah, it's a wonderful point. I absolutely agree. And it's something that Tyrion has been angling for since a Game of Thrones. I mean, remember him hiring the Mountain Clansmen as essentially his private army, and he uses them as his enforcement mechanism in King's Landing, so he has men that are loyal to him not to Tywin. He has Bronn putting together a you know, less than crack team of sellswords and ne'er-do-wells and is training them to augment his clansmen in the capital, as we discussed in earlier Tyrion chapters in the Clash of Kings. 
And to counter Littlefinger's flunky, he has Sir Jocelyn Bywater running the gold cloaks for now. Though whether Jocelyn is actually Tyrion's man or loyal to Vars is a question that I is a question that I think is left unanswered in a Clash of Kings. Setting up political institutions and alliances outside of Tywin is like is just another angle that Tyrion is using here. But the problem, and there's always a problem for Tyrion, is that in creating the Tyrell Lannister Marriage Alliance and the Dornish Lannister Non-Aggression Pact, Alliance, whatever you want to call it, he's using proxies to accomplish it, Joffrey and Marcella in particular. And in the case of the Lannister Tyrell Marriage Pact, Tyrion may have the IP for the ideas, but it's Littlefinger who's going to who he's going to delegate to work out all the details. And what that means in actuality is that come the end of A Clash of Kings, Tywin can seamlessly move into the political paradigm that Tyrion has established and hijack Tyrion's schemes as his own and run them in his own ridiculously fucked up way. That's very true. Tyrion is building this car and then his father can swoop in and drive it. And that's in part just because if that's how Tywin operates, but that's also... Tyrion kind of digs his own grave in that regard. And regardless of his motivations, he is basically giving the Tyrells everything they could want, with the price of fighting Stannis, a man they were already predisposed to dislike and resist. So what's the catch for the Tyrells? As Tyrion will admit to himself, the problem is Joffrey. That's the catch. (laughs) That's always the catch, and he can't get around it, try as he might. Joffrey's likely to screw this up. But Joffrey doesn't directly appear in this chapter. Cersei is the one Tyrion is having trouble with here, and her motivations are worth teasing out. She digs in her heels against Joffrey marrying Marjorie, despite the transparent fact that the Lannisters need this Tyrell alliance to have a prayer against Stannis. Hmm. Now, Cersei just doesn't like any rivals for power, so that could explain what's happening here. (laughs) But she also keeps shifting her explanation of her objection, why she's trying to keep Sansa as Joffrey's bride, even though there's really no reason to do that now. The common thread, I would argue, is the younger and more beautiful queen prophecy. Cersei believes she has neutralized that figure, as long as that figure is Sansa Stark. Hmm. But now she sees that it might be Marjorie Tyrell, who is far more powerful and well-protected than Sansa has been since her father's downfall. And while Cersei's paranoia ultimately works against her, she is not wrong to sense danger from the Tyrells. She is just wrong about what form it will take. And what a great irony that Cersei, who believes she has dedicated her life to protecting her children, doesn't even realize in this moment that Joffrey is now doomed. I love that point you're making about that Tyrion, that Cersei is, is sourcing her concern back to the prophecies she received. Of course, interestingly, um, George had actually not written that prophecy that came in a rewrite for A Feast for Crows, but it's something that could easily and seamlessly be re- reworked back into the narrative here. But I also think there's something else at work here, and that there's something deeply personal for Cersei in treating Joffrey like a method of payment to bring a great alliance into being. Does that sound familiar? It really should. Because Cersei herself was treated that way by Tywin all her life, with Lord Tywin first unsuccessfully trying to hitch Cersei and Rhaegar together, and then successfully marrying Cersei to Robert. Come Storm, Tywin is going to try this again with Cersei, considering matching her to well, Willis Tyrell, the cripple, or Oberyn Martell before she explodes her fire that she's not she's the Queen Regent, not a brood mare to be married off. And now evil Uncle Tyrion is playing the role of Tywin in a clash of kings, using Joffrey like a brood mare to make another alliance happen. My sense is that Cersei as we kind of unpack it a little bit more, and we will, especially in A Feast for Crows, that Cersei considers Joffrey a full or at least partial extension of herself. So Tyrion's proposal here is particularly galling. It's happening again. Tywin Writ Small is selling Cersei off to be married in order to make a great alliance that'll bring Westeros together. And what did it mean for Cersei to be married to Robert Baratheon? 
Nothing good for her, nothing good for the realm. You make great points. I think that's exactly what Cersei's uh, arguments are. That's what her perspective is. But Tyrion is beating down every one of her arguments, and it's interesting to note how he does it. On the surface, he just deflects the question of Joffrey's desires, or indeed his agency at all. We're the adults, he says. He'll marry who we tell him to marry. And he's not wrong, as we'll see at the end of A Clash of Kings, when Joffrey publicly sets Sansa aside and vows to wed Marjorie, despite his visible reluctance to do so. But because Tyrion is our POV, we have access to his thoughts, as well as his words, and his thoughts give us a more complicated and troubling picture. In truth, Tyrion is taking note of Joffrey's frustrated sadistic desires, and he's been planning on redirecting them even before the Tyrell marriage alliance. Tyrion's plan is to set Joffrey up with one of the sex workers at Shatiyah's, in the hopes that this will sweeten Joffrey, as he puts it, and maybe even make him grateful. In season 3 of the show, we see in detail how this would probably play out if Joffrey were a few years older, hideously and lethally for the women involved. But even here, it's clear that Tyrion's plan is misguided, dangerous, and reflective of the traumas and blind spots that have brought the Lannisters to this point in the first place. Tyrion is taking no concern for what Joffrey might do to these women. Who's going to stop him? Or worse, what if they do try to stop him and they hurt him, or kill him, or he orders them all killed? Lots of variables here. Lots to go wrong. (laughs) Tyrion cannot see that because of his own personal history with sex and sex workers, and how that is wrapped up with the brutal hierarchy at the heart of Tywin's vision of House Lannister, a hierarchy enforced in blood and misery. For Tyrion, sex with a sex worker is how you escape that. It's how you banish loneliness, alienation, self-loathing, and anger. A lot of that specifically comes from being a dwarf in a world that hates him for it, But it's also wrapped up in the one escape he ever had from that world, his marriage to Taisha, and how that escape was violently cut off. So it's the only way he can think of to manage Joffrey. There's something almost naive about how Tyrion (laughs) thinks this will be all it takes to cure what ails his nephew. Yeah. It's uh, It's the sweet lesson in contrast with Tywin's promised sharp lesson in A Storm of Swords. And I think both of them missed the point. Joffrey might be too far gone with that crown on his head for either honey or vinegar to do the trick here. Once again, Tyrion admits that all his plans rely on Joffrey being a child. But that won't be the case forever. What happens when Joffrey's an adult and unstoppable? But again, you have all of these kind of questions that are just lingering for the, for the long term. In the short term, all Tyrion needs is to get Cersei on board. And he gets some help in convincing her from Varys and Littlefinger. So what are their angles here? Why are they on board with this plan? Now, as I said, both of them just want to avoid Stannis sitting on the Iron Throne. But they also have other, more long-term and personal calculations at work. Littlefinger, as we see throughout this scene, is as obsessed with sex as Tyrion, (laughs) which is also rooted in a loss to love, though much less brutally in Littlefinger's case. He can't stop himself from talking about how bettable Marjorie is and how sweet Sansa's body is. Because he was denied Catelyn on the basis of his class, Littlefinger's political mindset is caught up in his frustrated sex drive. He cannot pry those two apart. We see that throughout the story. The Lannister-Tyrell marriage alliance will leave Sansa without a future husband, making her vulnerable to Littlefinger's predations in terms of both body and claim. Now, something interesting, I think, about the Stannis-Renly showdown is how little heterosexual, procreative, marriage-packed sex had to do with any of it. Renly's marriage is a shadow on a wall, and Stannis is notoriously disinterested in sex. His only (laughs) sons are shadows with his face who vanish after they've killed. 
But now, with this marriage alliance, we are back in the domain of leveraging sexuality for power consolidation. We are in the domain of the big tracts of land from Monty Python that refer to both <laughs> literal land and also breasts, because that's how the system of power works. You take, you know, sexuality and you use it for land grabs. You use it for power. You use it for consolidation. Tyrion and Littlefinger want to lead Joffrey into the Tyrell Alliance dick first by describing Marjorie this way. And Cersei strongly objects to this. It's a psychologically revealing moment for her. Now, I don't think it's about, like, objecting because she doesn't like seeing Marjorie sexualized. Cersei very much does not give a damn about Marjorie or any other woman, for that matter. It's because of how things turned out with Robert and Jaime. And because of how things turned out with Robert and Jaime, Cersei can only accept male sexuality within the context of a power dynamic that she controls. We are going to see that very strongly with the Kettleblacks after she becomes a POV in A Feast for Crows, but it also colors her view of Joffrey here in A Clash of Kings. Now, of course, Cersei generally blinds herself to all of Joffrey's misdeeds, but there is something specific at work when she denies him having a sexuality. <laughs> Cersei cannot stand the idea of her perfect golden son having a sex drive, because that makes him like Robert, and her whole goal in life is that he be nothing like Robert. When Tywin grumbles at her after coming back to King's Landing, I did not fight a war to seat Robert II on the Iron Throne. You gave me to understand the boy cared nothing for his father. And Cersei replies, why would he? Robert ignored him. He would have beat him if I had allowed it. The brute you made me marry once hit the boy so hard he knocked out two of his baby teeth over some mischief with a cat. As we saw in Book 1, Renly and the Tyrells were trying to set up Marjorie as looking like Lyanna. Exactly the kind of girl Robert would be into. Exactly the kind of girl who would lead Robert to indulge his hatred for Joffrey and Cersei. And now that very same Lyanna 2.0 is being dangled in front of Joffrey instead of Robert. Like a carrot. Remember how Cersei said Robert whispered Lyanna in her ears on their wedding night? And now we have Lyanna 2.0 being offered to Joffrey? That's what a nightmare this alliance seems like to Cersei. But... Tyrion and Littlefinger have her on the ropes in terms of their arguments, and then Varys slips in to help them, saying, oh, it must be done, it must be done, my queen. So why is he propping up the Lannister regime this way? It's again worth emphasizing that Tywin, the really kind of dangerous Lannister from Varys' perspective, is not involved at this stage of the planning. Maybe Varys was hoping, hoping that Tywin would fall in battle or become politically marginalized after the Tyrells showed up to take over the court. I think it's safe to say, regardless, that well before a feast, feast and dance, Varus was planning to set the Lannisters and Tyrells against one another after Stannis was dealt with. Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. I think it's also what Littlefinger wants, too. I mean, beyond like the personal stuff, which is obviously very interested in Sansa for less than um, political reasons, as we're going to unpack in significant length in the Storm of Swords and the Feast for Crows and the Winds of Winter, Elaine chapter. Uh, Littlefinger, though, has set the Starks and Lannisters against each other in Game of Thrones for political reasons of avenging himself against... Ned? Again, why Why Ned? But I guess he was the one that won Catelyn. That's why he's setting himself against her. But he's also using the chaos to rise above his station as master of coin, generally low-regarded small council position. Soon, Littlefinger is going to be angling for a higher position in great lordship, and he's only able to climb that high over the pile of a shitload of corpses that the War of the Five Kings creates. Again, a War of the Five Kings that Littlefinger essentially midwifed into existence. It's intriguing too, to consider the, you know, at this juncture of the story, that Littlefinger and Varys are at kind of cross purposes. They're kind of in, maybe not cross purposes, the wrong word, parallel purposes. Varys and Littlefinger want to forestall a strong warrior king from taking the Iron Throne in the form of Stannis. 
They both want Joffrey on the Iron Throne now, so as to have a weak monarch that they can undo with relative ease. They both want the Tyrell Lannister alliance now to keep Stannis off the throne, and someday down the road they plan to break up that alliance. I think that's for both of them. They both are planning for this alliance to break up. And they'll leverage the ensuing chaos to boost their own vessels of power into positions of power. Littlefinger using Sansa to become queen in the north with, of course, him as king, because of course Littlefinger is going to be the king to Sansa's queen, and Varys using his prepared prince and young Grift to take the Iron Throne out from under the new Lannister Tyrell regime. They're both going wheels within wheels several moves down the line, and they both have different short-term and long-term plans. And for this this brief instance, they're kind of clarified in a similar position, even as, yeah, their plans are ultimately working at cross-purposes. So, we've established the what, this marriage pact. We've established the where, bitter bridge. We have the why, save our skins, and the when, now if not sooner. So what's left in in determining the plan here is the who. Who do we send? And again, we see how all political opportunities collapse back onto what the political community makes of them, shadows on walls driven by fear and desire. For Tyrion and Cersei, the role of emissary to the Tyrells is a thankless task, poised to undo everything they've built up against the other so far in the book. More than in our comparatively bureaucratized and technologically advanced time, Tyrion and Cersei's personal presence is necessary for their power. And this is because their power comes from them going around and giving direct orders to people, and those orders being obeyed. The trappings of power are what give them power, everyone's belief that they're in charge. But things work somewhat differently for Littlefinger. He definitely leans on the trappings of power, but in a different way than the Lannisters. They want everyone to fear the snarling lion, to stand in awe and salute of its glittering golden mane. (laughs) Littlefinger benefits from everyone ignoring the Mockingbird. But the Mockingbird plants its eggs in your nest, and you don't notice until it's too late. It's almost the opposite, also, of the shadow Varys is trying to cast. Varys wants to look big, omnipresent, the spider weaving his web around you when you don't even realize it. Littlefinger benefits from being a little underrated. I think you're right. More than, But it's more than just being underrated. Littlefinger also benefits from taking on lesser regarded roles and tasks to achieve power. You know, as we find in A Game of Thrones, Robert scoffs at Littlefinger as a mere copper counter, and even Tyrion will be unable to really take advantage of his short tenure as Master of Coin in A Storm of Swords. This, I think, is precisely because of these men's status as noblemen who are above such tasks as counting coppers. Littlefinger's real genius, I think, is sensing an intellectual lack in his quote-unquote betters, and then becoming that's the subject matter expert in that task. And now here, Littlefinger takes on the role of an emissary, ostensibly carrying the Lannister offer to Mace Tyrell. Tyrion, again, is a very smart guy, but he's at a total loss as to why Littlefinger would want to take on this role. And part of Tyrion's political brilliance is that he can play the traditional Game of Thrones much better than just about anyone, because he studied it. He studied history, politics, warfare, science, etc. And he's observed all these pursuits in practice. Tyrion's intellectual passions can all be classified as eh, basically traditional Westerosi pursuits that a nobleman would definitely pursue. He just happens to be better studied than his forebears and his contemporaries. But Tyrion's blind spot is having the same class snobbery as those of his noble class. He's not about to stoop to learning a mercantile trade. That's work done by upjump peasants for lore's sake. And while Cersei will point out that Tyrion is a good talker, I mean, it's sort of true, but he's not precisely the diplomatic sort. More often than not, pissing off whoever he's talking to in numerous conversations that Tyrion has in the narrative. Enter Lord Littlefinger. 
former customs officer at Gulltown, current master of coin. He's the kind of guy that rubs two gold, gold coins together and magic comes up with four. He'll find a way to pay for Robert's lavish turning lavish. He'll find a way to pay for lo- Robert's lavish turnies and lifestyle through deferred interest. Again, go back and listen to our episode on Game of Thrones Edit 4. We talked about this at significant length. And here's the kicker. All of those loan negotiations, all the economic interests that he's used the exchequer to buy the crown into, that mass system of corruption that he's created, it all means that Littlefinger is the perfect candidate to play emissary. And Littlefinger's demonstrated his diplomatic ability before when he got into the grubby negotiation weeds of turning Janice Lynn and the Gold Cloaks against Ned Stark in the Game of Thrones. Tyrion, I don't think he can see that Littlefinger, the diplomat, is running the same game he's run as Master of Coin, being really good at something that his betters, in quotation marks, don't like to do in order to betray his betters, the cause, the country, and his benefactors. I think you got to the heart of it. It's just a different understanding of where his power comes from and what he can use his power as springboards for than the Lannisters are working with. Even though Tyrion kind of understands Littlefinger better than the rest of his family, it's just not quite enough. Littlefinger's power is achieved through people he never gives public orders to because he doesn't have to. They're his people. They have their jobs because of him. And their job is to just quietly ignore his corruption. When you think about like how the, the mobs ran casinos out in Vegas and what kept getting them in trouble is when they would just send their goons directly in to stomp around and cause a scene and attract local police and press. And when, when it was humming along, when they were doing it smartly, what they were doing is you just send in a guy and everyone in the counting room just pretends he's not there while he takes an enormous <laughs> amount of cash out of the safe and brings it back. That's all you got to do. While Littlefinger is rarely subtle in person... Credit is due for understanding the importance of a light touch when it comes to systemic corruption. You don't want to have to go around all day directly hustling people (laughs) on your two legs. You want everyone to know better than to screw you over in the first place. The mantra of corruption from the top down is, don't make me come down there. As such, Littlefinger can leave for weeks or even months at a time and be sure his system is humming along because it is built on omissions, on silence. That's his shadow on a wall. And as such, Littlefinger is free of the burdens that prevent Cersei and Tyrion from leaving the city. For him, this is a gigantic opportunity on multiple levels. And this is a great example of how Littlefinger gets a ball rolling without knowing precisely where it will lead, simply because he can sense literal and figurative profit on the wind. In the short term, this just gets Littlefinger out of the city. (laughs) Stannis will be coming soon with fire and blood. And whatever happens next, Peter Baelish wants no part of it. That's why he holds out for as many guardians as possible. But he also holds out for a knightly tale, specifically, to make him look important to the Tyrells. Again, his political POV was forged in the rejection of his hand for Catelyn. He's very used to not looking important enough. And he wants a document, making clear his power to making arrangements on behalf of the Crown, signed by everyone on the Council. And this is a blank slate for... Well, anything he wants, basically. (laughs) Coupled with as much gold as he can carry, Littlefinger has guaranteed both his survival if all goes to shit and a dramatic rise in fortunes if all goes well. He wins either way. It is an impressive performance. We will talk about his larger plans later in the episode. But this is Littlefinger's big move in A Clash of Kings, and he plays it to the hilt. Mm-hmm. And Littlefinger is, quote unquote, not unskilled at diplomacy, and he can use his legally binding powers, as you were referencing before, to do whatever he wants to do. I mean, consider that during his tenure as Master of Coin, Littlefinger ran a massive Ponzi scheme right under the noses of the most powerful people in Westeros. Now he's on his own, 
riding for Bitter Bridge without even the shred of oversight over hanging over top of him. And that's really key for Littlefinger's scheme here. He's entirely on his own without a minder or Lancer Toady to counteract him. And I think this is also a failure on Tyrion's part as acting Hand of the King. Tyrion knows that he can't trust Littlefinger, but he sends him off with a, quote, do whatever the fuck he wants papers in hand. Of course, it's hard to imagine a person Tyrion might send who'd fully comprehend what Littlefinger is going to get up to in Bitterbridge, but maybe, just maybe send Sir Jaslyn Bywater to accompany Littlefinger to Bitterbridge. I mean, after the riot in Tyrion's ninth chapter, our next Tyrion chapter, Jaslyn will tell Tyrion about the word on the street, and which to me indicates he's got his ear to the ground, he knows and senses the environment he's around, and he bluntly tells Tyrion the ground truth, even if Tyrion doesn't want to hear it. And at the very least, sending Sir Jason Bywater away might save the poor man's life. You know, hypothetically, save his life. Not hypothetically. Or maybe, and I admit this is strange, but why not send Bronn with Littlefinger? Sure, Bronn's not some political supermind, but I'd wager that Bronn's low cunning would at least allow him to see that something is off with what Littlefinger does at Bitterbridge. So perhaps Jason and Bronn return with Littlefinger and speak of their suspicion to Tyrion, and maybe... When Tyrion is framed by the Tyrells and Littlefinger come a storm of swords, Tyrion, who again is quite intelligent, can put all the pieces together and figure out who was actually behind the attempt to frame him. Maybe. It's just that perfect frustration where George, you know, has to keep Littlefinger around because he's got plans for him, but, you know, wants to torture us and get, have other characters get so close to realizing what he's up to and then just miss it. And then, yeah, instead, of course, Jocelyn Bywater dies at the Blackwater. Bronn ends up being kind of co-opted by Tywin, and Tywin himself has no interest in hearing from Tyrion on this or any other subject and just steamrolls ahead. And the chance to get rid of Littlefinger is missed once more. Now, of course, this chapter, as you can tell, is more concerned with plot than with character. But we are seeing George develop the central character dynamic of these Tyrion chapters in A Clash of Kings. His dysfunctional relationship with Cersei and how it ultimately dooms them both. Even when their interests align. Even when they are managing to work as a unit, even when on the surface they are repairing their relationship and moving forward together at last, we get plenty of signs that it won't last. Hmm. It'll fall apart worse than ever. Right after they agree on the marriage pact that will save both of their lives, Tyrion and Cersei go right back to trying to one-up each other by getting the other one to leave the city. It's not even the pretense of trust. And when there is the pretense of trust, as at chapter's end, it rings wildly false. Cersei apologizes to Tyrion, praises his efforts, even gives him a kiss. And the only way Tyrion can interpret this gesture is that Cersei must be planning something, <laughs> must be trying to pull the wool over his eyes with sweetness. He's right, of course. But how tortured and sad it is that the Lannisters cannot even imagine sharing genuine emotions with each other. They cannot care for each other as a family should because of their personal backstories with each other and also because power has corrupted their family so thoroughly. Even as the Lannisters save themselves from the forces of destruction outside them, they are as helpless as ever before the forces of destruction from within. That's well said, man, and I, I agree. And for me, it's it's a strange parallel, but I was rereading A Clash King's Davos 2, as one does, when Stannis spends a whole paragraph attempting to figure out what Renly meant by offering him that peach. And you had a wonderful soliloquy on this back when we were doing part two of, of Catelyn's third chapter, and that there's a lot of meaning behind what Renly was doing here. But ultimately, for Stannis, it is a gesture that will vex the king into his grave. That kiss here in this chapter that Cersei gives Tyrion, it vexes him, essentially. It's kind of... It kind of fulfills the same narrative function that Renly's Peach does. And it leaves Tyrion 
strangely unnerved and stuttering to Bronn about. This is not normal Tyrion that we're seeing at the end of mm. this chapter. There's a lot going on here. Cersei is definitely probably something as we'll find out later in A Clash of Kings. But it's also getting under Tyrion's skin because, we should be honest, he wants Cersei sexually. It's not exactly subtext in A Clash of Kings. Tyrion essentially says as much in his first chapter and when he's alone with Cersei in, that, in the small council chambers. And Tyrion is going to make that a horrifically explicit what he wants from Cersei come a dance with dragons. But there's even more at work here. Tyrion ties this act back to his childhood and how the last time that Cersei kissed him was when he was six, maybe seven years old. And Cersei did it on a dare from Jaime, and that memory has been burned to Tyrion's mind. I mean, six or seven, do you guys remember a lot of your memories from when you were six or seven? Not really. I don't remember many of them at all. To me, it speaks to how that same feeling that goes into Tyrion that you were talking about how Tyrion is regarding sex workers, um, that he can't imagine anyone truly loving him. It speaks to that same vein of truth that's in Tyrion. For Tyrion, a kiss, one of the most physically intimate things two people can do is mockery or treachery. Tyrion can't fathom anyone kissing him or loving him in earnest. So when Cersei kisses him here, Tyrion senses or knows that it's a lie. As he says in his first chapter, fool, he thought to himself afterwards, they lay in the center of the sagging mattress amidst the rumpled sheets. Well, you never learned, dwarf. She's a whore, damn you. It's your coin she loves, not your cock. Remember, Taisha? And as you were saying, Tyrion is going to be proved right yet again. The kiss that Cersei gives him was a cover for a conspiracy. Another kiss. Another lie. That's heartbreaking, man. I, I think it's heartbreaking for Tyrion, a character I don't have a lot of sympathy for, but I can feel things for even a monster like Tyrion. Mockery or treachery, as you said, and they become kind of united into one thing in his mind as we go forward, especially towards the end of A Storm of Swords and in A Dance with Dragons. Moving on now into foreshadowing and groundwork, Bronn will indeed find out what Cersei has cooking. A conspiracy with the Kettleblack brothers, who will be first mentioned in Tyrion's next chapter, when we learn that he has brought their services in turn. <laughs> of course. Yes, this is one of those, like, uh, this is probably the most minor conspiracy that we have in a Clash of Kings about these Kettleblacks. Sure. Like, I, I'd even, like, I not totally, but I'd totally not completely forgotten until you brought up the notes that the Kettleblacks are actually in a Clash of Kings. They fulfill a minor role of, you know, spying on Tyrion. No, they're spying on Cersei. No, they're actually out for their own, as Littlefinger's going to be. They're quadruple agents, as it's going to be put together in, in a Storm of Swords, because they're actually bought by Littlefinger, and now they become part of Cersei's love triangle qua square. Is it a quite square by the time we get to a feast? It's non-Euclidean geometry when it comes to Cersei's <laughs> love life, Jeff. You can't even, like, you know, philosophers have gone mad trying to plot that one out. But yeah, that's, that's definitely going to be developed later. That's just a seed being planted right here. Mm-hmm. As we discussed in our Renly episode last week, we do learn in A Storm of Swords what happened to Renly's body. Loras buried it somewhere secret near Storm's End. Varys just drops that in passing. It's, again, very small kind of twist, but it's, it's George kind of drops that here and pays it off later. Yeah, I think this is something that George definitely had in mind for what happened to Renly's body when he was writing this chapter. And he brings it out really emotionally powerfully in A Storm of Swords when Jamie talks with Loras about this, about what actually happened to Renly's body. It's cool. I, I think it's one of those nice touches, as we talked about in our Renly episode, that gives give some emotional weight to Renly and that those left behind are the ones that are we can find Renly's legacy in the most like Loris Terrell his, well his lover and friend yeah well put George also drops in a comparison between wildfire and the candlelight in Cersei's eyes because of course she's going to be taking quite an interest in the substance going forward not just her Tyrion as well but Cersei has more of a I don't know shall we say visceral kind of connection to wildfire it, it turns her on is what I'm saying 
Oh yeah, she wants to fuck Wildfire, or she wants, to, or she thinks she's Wildfire that is fucking. I mean, it's one of the. It's basically one of the one of the two potentially. It's it's, it's so hard many things. to tell. It's like a David Cronenberg thing where it's like I don't know where the desire begins and the control ends. It's <laughs> again, Cersei's sexuality is a is a is a strange beast. We'll have. We're going to have an interesting time with those Feast for Crows chapters because I love them with Cersei, but it's difficult to describe exactly <laughs> what it's like with Cersei's POV. It doesn't break itself down to dry analysis very well. So we'll see how we do. I'm, just, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to get, I'm already planning right now for a few years ahead. I'm going to give you a number of these synopses so you can like give the, the full Emma treatment about just going into the paranoia and the silliness of these chapters. I think it'll be, be delightful. I'll just be like, you know, like Baron Munchausen waving my sword drunkenly on stage as the theater collapses around me. It'll be wonderful. <laughs> it's all so good. So we have Littlefinger here is mentioning as being not a frightened of shepherds, only of the sheep. And I think this mm. might be a reference to him being the quote, Lord of sheep shit, as he tells Sansa in A Storm of Swords, aka the Lord of his current holdings in the fingers. And he's given, <laughs> this is great. He actually gave the name to his holdings here. It's, he calls it the Drear Fort. And his lands boast a small village, a hermit cave, and of course, a massive flock of sheep. Littlefinger always likes his sardonic references to, you know, his childhood and where he came from, and that's his armor here. He likes to cover up his his little stories about his origins. And yeah, it's quite a moment when we get to Sansa's sixth chapter in the Storm of Swords, and we get to kind of break that open a little bit and actually see where he came from. It's it's kind of intimate, but kind of not because he never really he never really lets go of the mask. That's little finger <laughs> for you. So we see mentioned here Courtney Penrose and his stubborn defiance holding Storm's end against Stannis, and this will come up again in Catelyn Five when Edmure says we received a letter from Courtney Penrose, and that's when we specifically learn that Edric Storm is becoming the sticking point, and then that all pays off in Davos too when we see Courtney Penrose. So it's a little threefold revelation of cueing us into this guy who was barely mentioned before, but now suddenly becomes briefly the center at Storm's end and all the operations there. It's one of the most fun aspects of George's writing that you can have like one character that suddenly just rises very high in the mm-hmm. narrative like a phoenix and is very bright and mm-hmm. very memorable. But people remember Cordy Penrose for having all of about seven or eight lines of dialogue, but they're all so memorable, despite him being a total villain, that they make people love this guy for reasons that we will get into at significant length come a, storm, <laughs> come a Clash of Kings Davos 2. Oh, we're going to have so much to get into at length in the Clash of Kings Davos 2. It's a book <laughs> of a chapter in itself. We also get another mention here of Tyrion's great chain. Cersei asks how it's, you know, proceeding along. And George is continuing to strike the balance of keeping it in our heads without giving away what it's for. So the Blackwater lands as a, as a surprise, but not a complete out-of-nowhere shock. It's that great balance where you want to build on information the audience has, but that we haven't quite put together in our heads yet before it happens. See, here's my question to you about this. Do you think that Cersei knows what the chain is for at this point and is, is being George intentionally keeps it from the reader's perspective? Or is she still under this... A mistaken assumption that this is a chain for Joffrey's wedding name day, as Tyrion talks about in, I think it's his third chapter in The Clash of Kings. The fact that she goes right from this into, like, you've been a great help on policy suggests that to me that she might have some inkling that it's actually for a battle, but maybe she thinks it's just supposed to keep out Stannis' fleet, which hmm. is also what Davos thinks when he shows up. Like, oh, if they have this, like, you know, this little tower, this little chain, you know, uh, set up, why aren't they cutting off the entrance? And then he realizes way too late, oh, it's a trap. So... <laughs> I don't know if Cersei has quite put all of that together. I don't think Tyrion feels the need to tell her, but I also think Tyrion probably doesn't feel the need to, like, especially keep that from her either. Like, you yeah. know. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, I think Tyrion's just working on his own track, but I think, the, you know, the, the bigger uh, drive at work is George trying to balance the information in the reader's mind, which is such a delicate task. And he does it really well. I, I agree. I think he does it a really good job so that when the chain actually comes into action at the Battle of the Blackwater, it becomes such a memorable event from Davos's third chapter in A Clash of Kings. 
Finally, for foreshadowing Gronk, we have hashtag, hashtag, riot, watch, riot, watch. Yes, we've got Littlefinger here mentioning here how little food is available in the market these days. Once more, reminding us that the city is basically a pressure cooker. Right before it blows sky high with the bread riots in Tyrion's ninth chapter, which that is probably my favorite Tyrion chapter in A Clash of Kings. I'm, we're going to have so much to say about this. We'll try. Well, I will make no promises whether it's going to be a one part or a two part episode. But yeah, it's it's a brilliant chapter that deconstructs so much of what's going on in King's Landing and lays the Lannisters bare and all of their corruption and what actually means for all of the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are living under their fucking traitorous regime. Perfectly said, and I totally agree. That is my favorite Tyrion chapter in the Clash of Kings, and it's the it's the sickening sensation of all these people and all their concerns and anger and fear that Tyrion's been keeping just out of the corner of his eyes, suddenly crowding into the center of his eyes and demanding his attention. And it is it is terrifying and exhilarating in equal measure. And I love George doing the build up for it. Mm-hmm. So going into our discussion portion of the episode, since Tyrion Eight plays host to Littlefinger's big move in the Clash of Kings, and since he's going to be spending a lot of time going forward uh, off the page, but doing significant actions, we thought this would be a good time to trace, as best we can, how the Mockingbird's master plan evolves between this chapter and his next big move, namely the Purple Wedding. Right. So this is an interesting spot to do this. So as we know from the narrative, Tyrion, excuse me, Littlefinger is going to disappear completely from the narrative until Sansa's final chapter, where he dramatically reappears. Of course, he's already shown back up at the Battle of the Black Order with the Tyrells and the Lannisters, being, of course, very, very far behind the actual vanguard of the battle itself. You know, he doesn't want to get himself dirty, potentially in the battle itself, actually doing all the foul deeds that he's uh, he's accomplished on behalf of the Lannisters. So Let's trace a little bit of where Littlefinger has been so far in the narrative. He was a major part of A Game of Thrones, playing a big role in Ned and Catelyn's storyline specifically. But now here in A Clash of Kings, he's in a somewhat precarious position at the start of the book. He has, yes, he's helped turn Janos and the Gold Cloaks against Ned Stark in A Game of Thrones. But Tywin at the end of A Game of Thrones suspects Littlefinger of being a traitorous little fucker because... Yes, a traitorous little fucker, because he counsels Joffrey to execute Ned Stark, something we talked about in our analysis of Arya's fifth chapter in Game of Thrones. So then Tyrion arrives in King's Landing with a mandate from Tywin to sort out the true and the false counselors. But what's interesting about this is that, and this is, we, we talked about this when we were talking about our fears for Clash King, some of the things we weren't super pleased about, is that little Tyrion is never going to get to the point where he can actually be like, I need to remove this guy because he thinks he's so invaluable. It's because Tyrion shows up to King's Landing knowing that Littlefinger has lied to Catelyn about the cat's ball dagger and the owner. Namely, that Tyrion has framed, Littlefinger has framed Tyrion for owning the dagger and setting the dagger against Bran Stark. And now Littlefinger knows that Tyrion knows, as we talked about in an earlier Tyrion chapter. But Tyrion feels like he can't touch Littlefinger given how valuable he is in keeping Joffrey on the Iron Throne. This, of course, doesn't prevent Tyrion from enacting his hat trick plot to find out who's informing on him to Cersei, which, of course, is always interesting about this Lancer is that the internal dynamics are often just being the focal point of conflict and stress in the Lancer storyline in A Clash of Kings instead of the external factors, which are the Baratheons and the Starks. Tyrion then offers in that hat trick scheme, offers Littlefinger Harrenhal if he can deliver Lysa Aaron and the Veil to Joffrey. But it turns out, nope, that Harrenhal offer was false. Gotcha, buddy. Just a joke, just a prank, bro. Littlefinger is wounded that Tyrion manipulated him, which is just 
so delicious, man. I love that. And we talked about that significantly like back in Tyrion's sixth chapter. And I think this is where Littlefinger started plotting something else, which, of course, I'll talk about when we get to A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 14. But now here in this chapter, Littlefinger offers to go to Bitterbridge to negotiate the marriage of Joffrey to Marjorie. Why? I think you, you put it really well above when you were talking about how Littlefinger is hoping to get out of Stannis' warpath. But he's also going to be rewarded for his actions if the scheme goes through, and he plans to make out whatever way, even if the Lannisters lose the battle, he's going to survive somehow. But he's also an agent of chaos, which is a term that George R. Martin used in 2016 to describe Littlefinger, which of course was personally gratifying to be for reasons that I can talk about offline. Because Littlefinger is also using this diplomatic foray to sow seeds for future chaos. Littlefinger can both create the alliance as well as destroy it down the road. And I really, really think this is what was animating his thoughts as he rode to Bear Bridge and kind of pieced this conspiracy in his mind. Perhaps he didn't have all of the parameters discovered determined now in A Clash of Kings Tyrion 8, but I'm sure by the time he got to Bitter Bridge, he knew exactly what he was going to do. Yeah, exactly right. He can both create the alliance and destroy it. He can build this pyramid out of dynamite and then hold on to the match, ready to light it all up. And this is one of the most crucial negotiations of power in the story, Littlefinger and the Tyrells at Bitter Bridge, and we don't directly see it. We have only Littlefinger's word to go on, and he's not exactly reliable. The Tyrells and their allies, the Rowans, the Tarleys, the Oakharts, have forsaken Stannis' campaign for good at this point. They have a larger army than he does, but there is no way politically to keep that army together if they remain on their own while Stannis takes the Iron Throne. Marjorie's widowhood represents the sudden instability of her family's fortunes. The personal is political. Sex and power are so deeply intertwined they are hard to separate. They need a new king, and Marjorie needs a new husband to produce the next king. These are one and the same concern, and Littlefinger walks into the room knowing that. It would seem his knightly tale did the trick of getting Littlefinger access to the central rosebush itself, Mace Tyrell and more so his mother Olena, who was born a red wine, and is probably the main reason Littlefinger wanted to take a red wine twin along. Mm. Olena is a carefully kept secret from the reader until her introduction in A Storm <laughs> of Swords, so again, it's difficult to establish what the dynamic was here. But Littlefinger must have known, I think it's fair to say, who he had to persuade and how. Loras on the romantics, Olena on the logistics, and Mace in between. That's the Tyrells in a nutshell, and Littlefinger played each in turn, or so he says. Now, I don't think he's lying exactly. I think he did use both Song and Steel to get what he wanted, while convincing the Tyrells it was all their own idea and he but their humble servant. Or at least he convinced Mace Tyrell of that. He leveraged the romantic idea of the Kingsguard in stories, the image he fell in love with as a lad and now feels betrayed by, to ensure Loras joined the Kingsguard. Now why do this? Much as Littlefinger, like the Tyrells themselves, and Vars too, prefers the Lannisters to Stannis in the short term, he does not want their power secured in the long term. So while on the surface, ensuring Loras' introduction to the Kingsguard binds the families together, gives Mace a useful role for his favorite son... As Littlefinger tells Sansa, what putting Loras in the Kingsguard actually does is put a hot-headed, violent young man in permanent close contact with the sadistic young king who is about to be married to the violent young man's sister. <laughs> a recipe for disaster, and Littlefinger set that up deliberately. It's as if Sansa was married to Joffrey with Rob serving in the Kingsguard. Not everyone is Aemon the Dragon Knight, you know, made to sniff back a perfectly manly tear in situations <laughs> such as these. Littlefinger's brilliance here is ensuring the Tyrell-Lannister alliance persists in the short term while ensuring that it disintegrates in the long term. 
yet. Well, I think Mace and Loras did get thoroughly worked over by the Mockingbird here. They just went along with his scheme without realizing that's what they were doing. Olena immediately understood Littlefinger's ploy, and that's why she had to corroborate it all with Sansa. She knows her family needs a new king, but she realizes there must be a couch somewhere in here and that it's probably Joffrey. So her questions at Bitterbridge focus on not what the Lannisters and Tyrells have to offer one another, but on the potential seed of their mutual ruin that Littlefinger is carefully planting. Littlefinger responds by praising Joffrey, sticking to the party line, acting like a good Lannister emissary, publicly reassuring the Tyrells so they can all move forward. But under the surface, he has his men whisper the truth about Joffrey to the Tyrells' men so the Tyrells understand what's going on. Now again, why is Littlefinger doing this? Because he's probably reached the same conclusion as Bronn, that Joffrey has outlived his usefulness here, and that now he's just kind of getting in the way, and that Tommen, like a king should, will just do what everyone tells him to do. So what I just love about the Tyrell-Littlefinger negotiation at Bitterbridge is that in the guise of working out a marriage pact, what Littlefinger and the Tyrells have actually done is taken out a murder <laughs> contract on the bridegroom, all without making a word of it explicit. And that is politics, baby. You were talking about this, about Littlefinger being the uh, kind of the gangster type figure and, you know, plotting a criminal deal like a political master as a political mastermind a criminal enterprise and the guise of a wedding is something that is uh, very prevalent in, in certain gangster movies and stuff like that so i think that's that's brilliantly said i think we how much of this is actually true to what occurs at bitter bridge like you were saying there's that aspect of that unreliable narrator which is a big big part of Littlefinger and that he is always playing multiple games at the same time, always having multiple things occurring at the same time and often not telling the truth, rarely telling the truth, never telling the truth. So I, I honestly think, and this is one of those rare occasions that I think the Littlefinger is telling the truth because what Littlefinger does with Sansa in A Storm of Swords is that he's not there to kind of impart a lesson to her or attempt to boost himself up He's bragging. He's bragging about what a brilliant fucking political mastermind he was in order to make this all come together. And I think that's ultimately Littlefinger's downfall is his hubris, his arrogance, his desire to monologue, caught me monologuing as uh, the villain from from The Incredibles said. That's Littlefinger. Always, I imagine that he's being led to the block at, in Winterfell. He's going to be monologuing about how he had done all these wonderful things his entire life. And right before the axe or the sword comes down on, across his neck. That's really a powerful part of Littlefinger's character and story and characterization and that he has a weakness we've talked a lot about Tyrion's weaknesses here his blind spots Littlefinger has blind spots too his blind spot is the form of Sansa Stark that is the one piece who is coming into a mind of her own in A Feast for Crows is becoming much more into a mind of her own as we see in the sample chapter from The Winds of Winter and it makes perfect sense but I think here we see Littlefinger at his best game this is a brilliant cynical utterly fucked up wicked thing that Littlefinger does and it's great it's so much fun to actually get in the mind of Littlefinger and see what happens and I, and I think the one aspect I'll say before I close out is that I love the fact that George leaves this off page 
in a clash of kings and we wait have to wait to a storm of swords to actually get the backstory of what occurs in this space of those 35 ish chapters that go between this chapter and when Littlefinger shows back up in king's landing at the end of a storm at the end of a clash of kings and sansa's final chapter it's great I love it. It's a great way that George writes a song of ice and fire and that he fills in the details post facto and makes us kind of go like, oh, 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 now it all makes sense. It's good. I love it. Well, it's how you really keep track of a person like Littlefinger. You're not always going to be able to know what powerful people are doing all the time. You only know the information they give you. And even then, you can only trust that Littlefinger's telling you the truth. I agree with you. He probably is in this case because he's trying to get Sansa to see these connections. But maybe he's, he's uh, you know, overstating the fact. Maybe he's describing some things he wished he had done. There's no reason to tell all the truth all the time. So it's, it's always going to be a shadow on a wall. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps up for this analysis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 8. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to those of you who are watching this live stream. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. Follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merryful Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, and our newest High Lords, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, and Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you folks very, very much, and welcome to Joe Snow and Kaboth. Excellent question, Kaboth. We'll feature the second part of your question next week, as we will be sailing back to the north for Theon 3, in which our hero, hero, hero commits a bunch of war crimes, and then comes up with a crazy-ass plan to take Winterfell with a handful of his ironborn bros. Gosh, thank gods that this is never going to work out, because Theon's just a fucking idiot, right? Right. Sadly, this is one of the long shot plans that actually works, or it works just long enough for Theon to screw himself over. Theon's storyline on the Clash of Kings is, you know, an ongoing cyclone of terrible decisions, and <laughs> Theon 3 just makes everything worse. Mm, cannot wait for that chapter. I can't actually wait for that chapter. It's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to you all who have been watching us on our live streams, and thank you to our patrons, and we will see you guys sometime with some of y'all literally next week. <laughs>